Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Section 16 of The Lord of Death and the Queen of Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE LORD OF DEATH AND THE QUEEN OF LIFE by Homer Eon Flint PART Four: THE QUEEN OF LIFE CHAPTER Three: THE FIRST Venusian. When the sky-car was within a thousand miles of the surface, Smith adjusted the currents so that the floor was directed downward. The four changed from the window to the deadlight, and watched the approaching disk with every bit of the excitement and interest they had felt when nearing Mercury. The doctor had warned them that the heavy atmosphere which Venus was known to possess would prevent seeing as clearly as in the case of the smaller planet. All were much disappointed, however, to find that they were still unable to make out a single definite detail. The great half-shining, half-black world showed nothing but that vaguely streaked, ice-like haze. There was something very queer about it all. "'Strange that we should see no movement in those clouds,' mused the doctor aloud. That is, if they really are clouds. Van Emmon already doubted it. Just what I was thinking. There ought to be terrific winds. Yet so far as I have seen, there's been nothing doing anywhere on the surface since we first began to observe it. After a while, the doctor put away his binoculars and rubbed his eyes. We might as well descend faster, Smith. Can't see a thing from here. Unhindered by air, to impede its progress, the sky car had been hurtling through space at cometary speed. Now, however, Smith added the power of the apparatus to the pole of the planet, so that the disk began to rush toward them at a truly alarming rate. After a few seconds of it, Billy found herself unconsciously moving to the side of the geologist. He looked down at her, understood, and flushed with pleasure. "'There's no danger,' he confidently assured her, with the result that, her courage fortified, the girl moved back to her place again. Van Emmon inwardly kicked himself." So deceptive was that peculiar fogginess Smith throttled their descent as soon as they had reached the point where the planet's appearance changed from brown to flat. They were headed for the line which marked the boundary of the shadow. This gray twilight zone was three or four hundred miles in width. On the right of it, to the east, the dazzling surface of that sunlit vapor contrasted sharply with the all-but-black mistiness of the starward side. Clearly the zone ought to be temperate enough. Down they sank. As they came nearer, a curious pinkish tint began to show beneath them. Shortly, it became more noticeable. The doctor gave a sudden grunt of satisfaction, and Smith stopped the car. A minute later, the doctor had taken a sample of the surrounding ether through his laboratory test vestibule, 
and shortly announced that they were now floating in air instead of space. "'Good deal like ours back home, too,' exultingly. "'Pretty thin, of course.' He made a short calculation referring to the aneroid barometer which was mounted on the outer frame of a window, and said he judged that their altitude was about five miles. The descent continued, Smith using the utmost caution. The other three kept their eyes glued to the deadlight, and their mystification was only equaled by their uneasiness, as that motionless, bleary gaze failed absolutely to show anything they had not seen a thousand miles higher, not a single detail. "'It reminds me,' said the girl in a low voice, "'of something I once saw from the top of a hill. "'It was the reflection of the sun from the surface of a pond, "'not clear water, but covered with—' "'Good heavens!' interrupted Van Emmon, struck with the thought. "'Can it be the whole planet is under water?' "'Beyond a doubt his guess was justified. "'There was an oily smoothness about that dazzling haze, "'which made it remarkably like a lake of still and rather dirty water.' under a bright sun. But the doctor said no. "'Any water I ever heard of would make clouds,' said he. "'And we know there's air enough to guarantee plenty of wind, yet nothing seems to be in motion.' He was frowning continually now. It was Billy who first declared that she saw the surface. "'Stop!' she said to Smith evenly, and he instantly obeyed. All four gathered around the deadlight, and soon agreed that the peculiarly elusive skin of the planet was actually within sight. However, it was like deciding upon the distance of the moon, as easy to say that it were within an arm's reach as a long ways off. The doctor went to a window. There he could look out upon the sun, a painfully bright object much larger than it looks from the earth. It was just ascending, and half of it was below the horizon. A blinding streak of light was reflected from a point on the surface not far from the cube. Shading his eyes with his hand, the doctor could see that the mysterious crust was absolutely smooth. On the opposite side of the car, the horizon ended in a sunrise glow of a slightly greenish radiance. From that side the pinkish tint of the surface was quite pronounced. Before going any lower, the doctor, struck with an idea, declared— we always want to remember that this car is perfectly soundproof. Suppose we open the outer door of the vestibule. I imagine we'll learn something peculiar. It was possible to open this door without touching the inner valves, using mechanism concealed within the walls. The moment it was done, the door faced the north. Pandemonium itself broke loose. A most terrific shrieking and howling came from the outside. It was wind, passing at a rate such as would make a hurricane— seem a mere zephyr. The doctor closed the door so that they could think. "'It's the draft,' he concluded. "'The draft from the sun-warmed side to the cold side.' As for Van Emmon, he was getting out a rope and a heavy leaden weight. On the rope he formed knots every five feet, about twenty of them, and after getting into one of the insulated aluminum-armored and oxygen-helmeted suits with which they had explored Mercury, he locked himself on the other side of the inner vestibule door and proceeded to sound. To the amazement of all, except Billy, bottom was reached in less than twenty feet. "'I thought so,' she said with satisfaction. But she was not at ease until Van Emmon had returned in safety from that booming, whistling turmoil. His first remark upon removing his helmet almost took them off their feet. "'The point is,' said he, throttling his excitement, "'the point is, the rope was nearly jerked out of my hands.' "'Understand what I mean? "'The surface is revolving.' 
This upset every idea they had had. It never occurred to any of them that the planet could revolve at such speed that it would appear stationary. Smith went at once to the eastern window and watched closely, for fear some irregularity in that apparently perfect sphere might catch them unawares. They did not learn till later that Venus's day is a little less than twenty-five hours, and therefore, since they had approached her near the equator, the wind they had encountered was moving at nearly nine hundred miles per hour. Bit by bit, though, the cube answered to the wind pressure. Soon they noted the sun rising slowly, and by the time it was two hours high, the surface, which had been whizzing under them like some highly polished top, became entirely motionless. The cube had stopped. One minute later the car touched the level. Smith very slowly reduced the repelling current so that the immense weight of the cube was but gradually shifted to the unknown surface beneath. Ton after ton was added until— "'Stop!' came from the doctor. He had noted through the window a slight curvature in the material. So the machinery was left in action. "'At any rate,' said Smith, "'we know that the confounded stuff isn't antimagnetic, whatever it is.' Of course this was true. Even though the gelatin-like shell could not support the cube's weight, yet it did not insulate the planet from the repelling current. The thermometer registered 335 degrees Fahrenheit, 280 degrees higher than it would be at home in the same latitude, remarked the doctor. We'll have to use the suits. He took it for granted that exploration should begin at once. No one stayed behind. The machines could be relied upon, as they knew from nearly two weeks of use, and certainly there was nothing in sight which could possibly interfere with the cube. Nevertheless, the matter-of-fact engineer took care to remove part of the door operating apparatus when he left the vestibule, and nobody commented upon it. It seemed the sensible thing to do, that was all. There was just about enough additional weight in their suits to balance the slightly reduced gravitation, so they moved about, four misshapen metallic hulks, with as much freedom as though back home. Always they kept within a few feet of each other, so as to throw no strain on their interconnecting telephone wires. The big glass-faced helmets gave a remarkable sense of security. They made a complete circuit of the cube, and at the end of it looked at each other in perplexity. Never, save in the middle of an ocean, in the doldrums, did any man ever see such a totally barren spot. Not a tree, much less a sign of human occupation. There was not even the slightest mound. The planet was, in fact, as smooth and as bare as a billiard ball. Moreover, the surface itself remained as mysterious as before. Of course they did not touch it with bare hands. All wore insulated mittens. But the dazzling stuff was certainly as hard as steel, and as highly polished. It was neither transparent nor opaque, but translucent, like pink mother-of-pearl, as Billy suggested. She was first to propose that they move to another spot. "'We ought to try a place where it's not yet dawn,' said she, shielding her eyes from the glare. It will be remembered that the suits protected them from the heat itself. "'Can't see anything.' "'Hush!' hissed the doctor. They turned and followed his gaze to a spot not thirty feet from where they stood. At the same instant they felt a faint jar in the material under their feet, and next second they saw that a large section of the supposedly solid surface was in motion. A portion about ten feet square was being lifted bodily in front of their eyes, and before another word was said this block of the unknown substance was raised until they could see that it was all of a yard thick. 
up it went at the same deliberate rate and the four involuntarily moved closer together as they saw that there was something underneath it was a cage for all the world like that of an elevator except that it was made of clear glass another second and it had stopped with its floor level with the surface and the people from the earth saw that it contained a man he was quite tall slenderly built and dressed in a queer satiny material which fitted him like an acrobat suit he was extremely thin as to legs narrow as to shoulders deep in the chest and short in the waist all this however they saw after their inspection of his head it was human marvellously refined in every detail yet it was set upon a graceful neck and modelled upon much the same lines as that of any man it was not that of a brute nor yet that of a bird it was human he stood at ease resting slightly on one foot and dispelled any notion that he might be unreal by shifting his weight occasionally meanwhile he watched the four with a grave interested smile and they in turn came closer his chin was small even retreating but his mouth was wide and curved into an exaggerated cupid's bow even as he continued to smile the curves did not leave his lips they however went thin rather than thick his nose was quite small with a decidedly irish cast but his eyes set far apart above the quite shallow cheekbones were exceedingly large and of a brilliant blue in fact it was mainly his eyes that gave character to his face although none could overlook his breadth of forehead running back to a cranium that fairly bulged over the ears and seemed ready to rise like a tightly inflated balloon his skin was pure white and so they stood for uncounted minutes at last the doctor noted that the stranger was eyeing them with far less interest than they showed in him he stood as though he felt on display and the doctor gave an exclamation of perplexity that broke the spell the four impulsively drew up to the glass van emmon touched it with his mitten and that is how the four explorers came to receive the vibrations that came next for the man in the cage in turn put out his hand and touched the glass opposite van emmon then he opened his mouth i am very glad to see you said he in a soft pulsating voice and in the best of english End of section 16